Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you are aware of a child who is being abused or neglected, you can report this to the National Child Abuse Hotline, reachable at 1-800-4-A-CHILD, which is one 800 4224453 You can also visit childwelfare.gov for state-by-state -state resources for reporting child abuse or neglect. In September of 1983, Judy Johnson picked up the phone and called the police in Manhattan Beach, California. She told them that her 2-year-old son had been molested by an adult at his daycare, the McMartin Preschool. Though the little boy showed no physical signs of sexual abuse and could not identify his abuser in a photograph, a full investigation was launched. Within seven months, police and social workers had interviewed hundreds of children, and over 300 students disclosed they had been sexually abused at the preschool. Some of the accusations were outlandish, such as children being flushed down toilets to secret rooms, but these bizarre details only heightened the national media attention on the case. In the wake of the McMartin preschool trial, more and more cases of alleged daycare abuse popped up across the country, eventually totaling in the thousands. In the fall of 1984, this panic over child sexual abuse reached the town of Pittsfield, Massachusetts forever changing the life of a 19-year-old teacher's aide, Bernie Barron. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This week, we're examining the 1984 daycare abuse scandal that centered around teacher's aide Bernie Barron. We'll follow the police investigation of the accusations against him and the evidence collected. Next week, we'll follow the resulting criminal trial and see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. In order to protect the victim's privacy in this case, various pseudonyms were used in police investigations and in courts of law. For these episodes, we will also be using the pseudonyms for the victims and their parents most commonly used in court documents. This includes Peter and Julie Haynes, Judith and Gina Smith, Stephen and Richard Thompson, Leanne and Annie Bailey, Virginia Stone, and John Larson. On May 26, 1965, Bernard Barron Jr. was born to Bernard and Bertha Barron. He was their third child, joining brother Santo and sister Sharon. The family lived in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, a working-class town nestled in the Berkshires. Bernie's father left the family when Bernie Jr. was just three years old. Afterward, Bertha worked long hours to provide her children with everything they needed. Bernie was an active little boy, always keeping his mother on her toes. But being the baby of the family, he always got a little extra attention and patience. When Bernie was 14, his sister Sharon noticed he was hanging out with a new crowd. They were all openly gay. Sharon asked Bernie why he was spending so much time with a group of gay teenagers. Bernie answered simply, because I am gay. While many adolescents struggle with their sexuality, Bernie never seemed to. He realized at a young age that he was gay and he was always comfortable with it. Even though Bernie found immediate acceptance within himself and from his older siblings, Bertha considered herself a little old-fashioned. When he came out to her, she couldn't wrap her mind around her son being gay. She didn't believe him. Crying, he told her that whether she understood it or not, he was gay. But she said no, it couldn't be. Bernie stormed out of the house. Bertha turned to her fiancé, Stanley, for support. Stanley looked her in the eye and asked her if she loved Bernie. Of course she did. He asked her if knowing Bernie was gay changed who Bernie was. She said, of course not. But just turn on the news, she argued. Gay people were attacked. They were beaten in the street. She couldn't face that happening to her baby. Bertha realized then that her reaction was one of fear, and she had let her fear drive a wedge between her and her son. When Bernie came home that night, she tearfully apologized and assured him that she would continue to do what she always did, love and support him. Bernie would need that unconditional support from his family. Not everyone in Pittsfield, or anywhere else in the country for that matter, was willing to accept an openly gay teenager in 1979. Bernie was a target for bullies. His gentle nature and slight build made it difficult for him to stand up for himself physically. His larger, older brother, Santo, did what he could to scare off the worst of Bernie's tormentors. But school simply was not a safe place for him. Bernie turned 16 in May of 1981. He finished out the last few weeks of his ninth grade year 
and then dropped out of school. To find work, he entered a job training program. After a few job placements, Bernie was eventually assigned to the Early Childhood Development Center, known as ECDC, in January of 1982. At 17 years old, Bernie became a teacher's aide in the daycare. Bernie loved children and had exceptional patience for their antics. Impressed with his job performance, ECDC hired Bernie on as a permanent teacher's aide seven months later. But Bernie's patience was put to the test when two-year-old Peter Haynes was placed in his classroom. He had a number of behavioral issues, largely stemming from an unstable home life. His 22-year-old mother, Julie Haynes, and her boyfriend, but not Peter's biological father, 26-year-old David Haynes, were both drug users. What started as a cocaine habit quickly spiraled out of control. Once, she was caught stealing syringes from the pediatrician's office during one of Peter's checkups. The Department of Social Services, or DSS, occasionally placed Peter in foster care for varying periods of time. Julie tried and failed repeatedly to get clean. While pregnant with another child in 1982, Julie admitted to her doctor that she had been using drugs during the pregnancy but was trying to stop. In an attempt to ease some of Julie's stress as she tried to get sober, DSS suggested that Julie enroll two-year-old Peter at ECDC in December of 1982. The center generally did not take children under the age of three, but they made an exception for Peter because of the situation. When Peter began acting out during his first week at the center, the teachers hoped he would calm down when he warmed up to the school and learned the routine. However, behavioral issues continued. Peter was aggressive with other children and with his teachers. He threw toys while screaming curse words as loudly as he could. Nothing the center did to curb his behavior seemed to make any difference. One time, in a fit of rage, Peter bit another child. As one teacher tended to the hurt child, another picked up a screaming Peter and placed him in the timeout chair. While sitting there, Peter continued to yell and curse. If another child walked too close to the chair, Peter would stick his leg out in an attempt to trip them. The only faculty member who seemed to be able to reach Peter was Bernie Barron. He stayed calm even in the face of Peter's most extreme behaviors. ECDC was in regular contact with Julie Haynes about her son's behavior, and in the summer of 1984, they told her they were exploring the possibility of expelling him. Julie was acutely aware of how much of a handful Peter could be and asked them to reconsider. Though she didn't enjoy getting regular phone calls from the school about Peter, she was happy with his placement and care at ECDC. That was until September of 1984. David and Julie Haynes had friends over one evening, and the conversation turned to the staff at ECDC. Julie mentioned how she didn't really like Bernie. She got a bad feeling off of him. In particular, she didn't like how he dressed. He didn't dress the way she thought a man should. One of her friends laughed and told her that was because Bernie was, in her words, queer. While the word queer has since been reclaimed by the LGBTQ community, that movement didn't start until the late 1980s. 
1984, this word was still used primarily as a slur. Julie was shocked to learn this about Bernie. David was furious. In their minds, no one with any sense would let a gay man anywhere near children. This view was not unique to the Haineses. A few now-debunked studies about gay men were given wide media attention in the 1970s and 80s. This so-called research supported the myth that gay men molested children in greater numbers than straight men. This led to a widespread false opinion that gay men were sexual deviants and attracted to children in particular. Fearing the school was unaware that such a man was in the classroom, David called ECDC the next morning. He wanted Bernie fired immediately. Jane Trumpy, the director of the school, wrote down the complaint and hung up the phone, not entirely sure what she should do about it. The first thing she supposed was to find out if it was true. Bernie was called down to the office where he met with Jane Trumpy and a few of the daycare's board members. Jane asked Bernie directly if he was gay. Bernie said yes. A member of the board asked him, for how long? Bernie, baffled by the question, asked if there was a problem. Someone else suggested Bernie, quote-unquote, change, because they didn't feel it was appropriate that a gay man worked at the school. He told them that he couldn't change. After they sent Bernie back to the classroom, Jane and the others discussed what they needed to do about this issue that they dubbed the Bernie problem, but they agreed they couldn't do much. Although it would be years before Massachusetts prohibited employment discrimination due to sexual orientation, Bernie's contract stated that he could only be fired for performance-related issues, and Bernie was an excellent employee. When David Haynes picked Peter up at school a couple of weeks later, on October 1, 1984, he was startled to see Bernie standing in front of the school waving goodbye to the kids as they loaded into their cars. To David, it looked like the school had ignored his complaint entirely. When David got home, he called the school. He demanded to know how they could continue to allow a gay man to take care of young children. The teacher he spoke to told him that the staff's personal lives were not the school's business. But if David and Julie objected, they were free to remove Peter from the daycare. And that's exactly what they did. Peter never came back to ECDC. When Bernie told his mother about the meeting with Jane Trumpy and the board of directors, Bertha told him to quit the job. He would only face hostility if he stayed. Bernie, who loved his job, brushed off her concerns. He believed that this issue would blow over and the school, like his family, would see that he was the same person he had always been. Word spread through the faculty and staff at ECDC about the Bernie problem. Some whispered about what they thought would happen to Bernie. Would Jane or the board find an excuse to fire him? Others whispered about what they thought should happen to him. Some co-workers felt that David Haynes had a point. A fellow teacher and friend of Bernie's pulled him aside and told him to watch out. While ECDC couldn't fire him for being gay, they were going to watch him for any misstep. This wasn't over, she warned. Not by a long shot.
Coming up, serious accusations are leveled against Bernie and the Pittsfield police begin an investigation. Now back to the story. In the early days of October 1984, David Haynes paced his apartment, stewing over the injustice of the situation he found himself in. From his perspective, his four-year-old son was forced out of daycare when the Early Childhood Development Center refused to fire 19-year-old Bernie Barron for being gay. Please note, due to conflicting statements from Julie and David Haynes in the years since 1984, it's unclear what exactly happened next. According to David and Julie's initial statements to police, on Thursday, October 4, 1984, Julie Haynes helped Peter out of his clothes and into the bathtub. Peter told her that his penis hurt, and as he sat down in the bath, Julie saw a little blood on his genitals. She called David into the bathroom. As Peter splashed in the water, Julie hesitantly asked Peter if someone had touched him on his penis and made it hurt. Peter said yes. He said it was Bernie Barron. David immediately called the police and reported that his son had been molested at school. The detective told him to take Peter to his doctor immediately to document the injury. However, on October 5th, Dr. Jean Sheely reported that there was no sign of injury or trauma to Peter's genitals. To rule out bleeding from an infection, she ran a urinalysis, which came back clean. There was simply no source for the blood Julie reported seeing. Dr. Sheely also swabbed Peter for sexually transmitted diseases, which was standard practice in sexual abuse cases. Following up on David's complaint, Detectives Robert Beals and Joe Colius drove to the daycare at 1.30 that same afternoon and spoke with director Jane Trumpy. Detective Beals got right to the point. There was an accusation made against one of her employees, a teacher's aide named Bernie. A child had accused him of sexual abuse at the daycare. Jane assured the detectives that it would be highly unlikely that any incidents occurred at ECDC, the center followed state mandates that no child be left one-on-one -on -one with a teacher. The open floor plan of the daycare also helped ensure all teachers were supervised when they were with children. While this accusation of abuse was new to Jane, she told the police that she remembered a complaint from a few weeks before. Jane opened her filing cabinet and pulled Bernie's file. She told the detective that a man named David Haynes had called the school upset that Bernie was allowed to work with children because he was a gay man. Coleus asked when David's son was last in class. After consulting attendance records, Jane told them that it had actually been four days since Peter had last seen Bernie, October 1st, though David reported that Peter attended school the day before, October 4th. While the attendance information was put in the police report, there was no indication that Detective Beals or Coleus noticed this discrepancy. When the detectives pulled out of the daycare driveway, Jane sent another teacher into Bernie's classroom, an extra set of eyes, just in case. By the evening of October 5, 1984, 
word had spread through the staff and board of directors of ECDC that a child accused Bernie of sexual abuse. At 9.45 p.m., another complaint was lodged with the police. Judith Smith's three-year-old daughter, Gina, had disclosed that she was also molested by Bernie Barron. Detective Bruce Eaton called the Smiths to follow up. When he heard what Gina had told her mother, he made arrangements to go straight to the home to interview the little girl. Detective Eaton brought along his partner, Detective Winpenny, and a social worker from DSS. The three arrived at Gina Smith's house at 10.50 p.m. Judith showed them into the living room where little Gina was playing. Judith explained that she sat on the board of directors of ECDC and she had been notified earlier of the accusation against Bernie. Because Gina was in Bernie's classroom until she left the school a few months before, Judith asked her daughter if Bernie had ever touched her in a, quote, funny way. Gina replied that Bernie had touched her privates. Judith, herself a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, was horrified. Shaking, she called Jane Trumpy. Jane told her to report it to the police. Detective Eaton took in what Judith was saying. If true, this was the second victim to disclose to police in less than 24 hours. Eaton turned to Gina and asked her to tell him what she told her mother about Bernie. But Gina, like many three-year-olds, was intimidated by a strange man questioning her and hid her face. To build some rapport, Eaton pulled out his badge and showed her how it could catch the light and let her hold it. This worked. Gina began to relax. Judith prompted Gina, asking her what she said earlier about Bernie. Gina repeated that while she was a student at ECDC, Bernie touched her privates once. Gina then said how much she loved the games she played with Bernie, like the bird's nest game and a touching game. But then Gina became upset and told her mother she wanted to talk to her alone in the hallway. So Judith took Gina out of the living room and out of earshot of Detective Eaton. They spoke for a few moments, and then Judith sent Gina to bed. Then Judith related to the detectives and social worker what her daughter said. Gina told her mother that the bird's nest game started when she and Bernie found a nest with a dead baby bird in it. Bernie told Gina that she couldn't tell the pretend police about the bird because he would get in trouble. Judith asked Gina about the other game she mentioned, the touching game. Gina said that when they played that game, Bernie took off her shoes and socks. She took off her own pants. Bernie would touch all the parts of her body, including her privates. Judith asked Gina if Bernie ever wanted her to touch his penis. She said yes, and then pointed to the inside of her foot. Bernie promised to give her a snack for playing the touch game with him. Detective Eaton asked if Gina had seen a doctor during the time she had been in ECDC, and Judith said yes, but her doctor hadn't mentioned anything seeming off. The social worker suggested Judith bring Gina in for a full examination, specifically looking for signs of abuse. Judith and her husband Jim asked what would happen next. If this went to trial, 
Would Gina have to testify in court? Detective Eaton assured them that they try not to have such young children testify, but they wanted to get a full videotaped statement the next day. When detectives Eaton and Winpenny left the Smith home, they were stunned. They had heard of these daycare abuse scandals in other cities, but they never expected it to happen in Pittsfield. The initial case, pointed to as the start of the daycare abuse hysteria, was in 1982, clear across the country in Kern County, California. Shortly after local social workers were trained in how to spot signs of satanic ritual abuse, an accusation of sexual abuse was filed against two local parents. The accusations snowballed, and 36 people were convicted of sexually abusing children. In 1983, what is arguably the most well-known of these cases, the McMartin Preschool Scandal, made national news following the arrest of Ray Bucky in Manhattan Beach, California. But detectives Eaton and Winpenny's thoughts may have been closer to home. Exactly one month before the accusations against Bernie were made, Gerald Amaralt was arrested only 140 miles away in Malden, Massachusetts. 30-year-old Gerald worked at the Fells Acres Day School, run by his 59-year-old mother, Violet. On a normal school day in April of 1984, a four-year-old student accidentally wet himself. Gerald took the boy to the bathroom and changed his pants. Gerald, a father of three, was a hands-on caregiver and changing kids when needed was part of his job. But this didn't sit well with the boy's mother and uncle. After repeated questioning over the next few months, the boy eventually accused Gerald of taking him to a secret room and sexually abusing him. More students came forward after news of the arrest broke, and accusations were also made against Gerald's 28-year-old sister, Cheryl, and his mother, Violet. In response to the rising fear of satanic ritual abuse, child sex rings, and daycare abuse, social workers and doctors were trained in how to identify victims. They were instructed that children would not disclose abuse unless it was true. They were also warned that children often falsely deny abuse when asked about it. Therefore, it was very important that children be properly questioned and examined before their denials were accepted. However, this usually involved asking leading questions with yes or no answers. Today, investigators know to use open-ended questions when interviewing children to avoid suggesting an answer. But at the time, it was routine to question children with leading questions, even after the child repeatedly denied the abuse. With a daycare abuse scandal now on their doorstep, Detectives Eaton and Winpenny knew they had to follow the accepted protocols. They called the district attorney's office to alert them to the investigation. The next morning, Saturday, October 6, 1984, a little after 9 a.m., David and Julie Haynes walked into the Pittsfield police station with little Peter in tow to have him make a formal statement. Peter was just a month shy of his fourth birthday, and in spite of his behavioral issues, it was clear he was an intelligent and articulate little boy. They met with Detective Robert Beals. To get Peter warmed up to the new place, 
Beals gave an excited Peter a quick tour of the police station, every four-year-old's dream. At the end of the tour, Beals led the family to the captain's office. Peter climbed up in David's lap, and Detective Beals sat across from him. Beals knew he had to build to asking about Bernie, so he started by just asking Peter general questions about going to school at ECDC. Did he like it there? Did he have friends there? Then Beals began asking about the teachers and, in particular, Bernie. Peter told Beals that Bernie touched his, quote, pee-pee. When asked where his pee-pee was, Peter grabbed the crotch area of his pants. He then said it was a secret. Beals asked Peter if Bernie ever made Peter touch him. He said no. When Beals pushed a little, asking if Bernie had ever asked Peter to touch him, he said no more vehemently. This line of questioning eventually upset Peter enough that he stopped answering altogether. Beals turned to Julie and asked about Peter's behavior. Had she seen any changes in him? Contrary to the stack of behavioral reports from ECDC showing that Peter had behavioral issues from the start, Julie told the investigators that Peter's behavior became worse toward the end of July. After about 45 minutes, they let Peter and his family go home. Between Peter and Gina's statements, they issued a warrant for Bernie Barron's arrest. Coming up, news of an arrest brings forward more accusers. Now back to the story. On October 6, 1984, 19-year-old Bernie Barron heard that the police wanted to talk to him about something. Not knowing why, he agreed to go down to the station. Once there, Bernie immediately waived his Miranda rights and agreed to talk to investigators without a lawyer. Police told Bernie that two of his students had made allegations that he sexually abused them. He denied it insisting that he never hurt anyone in his life, let alone a child. A 19-year-old high school dropout pitted against trained detectives didn't seem like a fair fight, but Bernie wouldn't budge. He insisted he was innocent and gave the detectives nothing. In spite of his claims of innocence, Bernie Barron was arrested at the end of his interrogation. He was charged with two counts of indecent assault and battery of a child, the only evidence against him being the statements of two toddlers. Bernie was sent to lockup, while Judith Smith brought three-year-old Gina to the station to make her videotaped statement. Detective Eaton greeted Gina with a smile to put her at ease. He crouched down and gave her a plastic police badge, just like the one he had shown her the night before. She was thrilled. Eaton then walked the family down to the district attorney's office, where they could videotape Gina's statement. The DA had called in Jane Satulo, a psychotherapist with the local rape crisis center, who had been trained in interviewing children in suspected abuse cases. Gina showed the same shyness she had the night before, and she initially didn't want to talk to a stranger, the most she would say was that Bernie did bad things to her. In line with the training Satulo received, she gave Gina anatomically correct dolls to play with. 
When asked to show Satulo what Bernie did to her, Gina put her fingers in both the doll's vagina and rectum. Satulo then asked Gina about the bird's nest game she had told the detectives about the night before. Gina said she had to call Bernie first to ask if she was allowed to talk about it. Satulo handed Gina a toy phone and said she could pretend to call him on that. Gina, unsatisfied with this solution, wouldn't say anything else after that, and the interview ended. On Sunday, October 7, 1984, Peter also sat down with Jane Satulo for a videotaped interview. Satulo handed Peter the same anatomically correct dolls she had given Gina, one boy and one girl. Peter immediately pulled off the clothes the male doll was wearing. He said that Bernie had touched his penis. According to the report from that interview, that was about all Peter said. He seemed completely uninterested in any other questions Satulo was asking him. Meanwhile, that same afternoon, Bernie's mother, Bertha, went to the bail bondsman. Using her car for collateral, she bailed Bernie out of jail. With rumors of his arrest spreading, Bernie went back to his mother's house and laid low. Across town on Monday, October 8th, Gina Smith was examined by her pediatrician, Dr. Jean Sheely, the same doctor who examined Peter Haynes. Dr. Sheely gave Gina a gynecological exam and found three tiny notches on her hymen. She believed these notches were signs of sexual abuse. However, a 1991 study of newborns indicated that these notches were observed in 35% of girls without any history of abuse. Dr. Sheely also swabbed Gina for sexually transmitted diseases. With two students making accusations against Bernie, the daycare center informed the parents of all 85 of the kids at the school about the accusations. All of the children were supposed to talk to investigators in an attempt to identify other victims, but several parents refused to allow it. They had been in and out of the school. They knew how busy it was and about the open layout. They couldn't imagine there was anything to these reports. But then there was another bombshell. Peter Haynes's throat swab came back positive for gonorrhea. Bernie was immediately picked up by police and taken to the Berkshire Medical Center to be tested. This only strengthened the investigators' belief that Bernie abused Peter and Gina. And if he abused two children, they figured he likely abused more. The school held a meeting for worried parents, explaining the behavioral changes to look for that could indicate sexual abuse. Jane Satulo performed a puppet show for the children at ECDC that demonstrated good touch and bad touch, and encouraged kids to tell an adult if they experienced bad touch. The media coverage, parent meetings, and puppet shows led to four more accusations against Bernie Barron. Stephen Thompson, the father of four-year-old Richard Thompson, called the hotline number on October 9th to report that his son had been acting oddly and had accused Bernie of touching his genitals. On October 13th, Leanne Bailey brought her three-year-old daughter, Annie, to Berkshire Medical Center. Annie told her mother that Bernie touched her vagina. 
but an examination showed no signs of sexual abuse. The same day Annie was brought into the Berkshire Medical Center, Marsha Lopez called the Pittsfield Police Department. Marsha was good friends with Julie Haynes, the mother of the first accuser. Marsha called the police to report that her daughter, five-year-old Virginia Stone, also accused Bernie of touching her and putting his penis in her mouth. However, unlike the other victims, Virginia had never been a student in Bernie's classroom. The final parent to come forward with accusations against Bernie was Deborah Tykowski. She went to the meeting that ECDC held, telling parents what to look out for as signs of abuse and noticed some of these signs, like hyperactivity in her four-year-old son, John Larson. She gently asked John if Bernie had ever touched him. John told her that Bernie touched his penis and his bottom. With these additional accusations, Bernie was re-arrested with additional charges of rape. He entered a plea of not guilty. The judge set his bail at an additional $15,000, citing the serious nature of the charges and the possibility of a life sentence as the reasoning. Bernie's family didn't have the money, and they didn't have anything left to offer a bondsman as collateral to get Bernie out. So he was going to have to stay in jail pending trial. Bernie was assigned a public defender, but his mother scraped together the $500 needed to retain Leonard Conway, a local criminal defense attorney. $500 in 1984 would be equivalent to over $1,200 today. Not a small sum for a family living paycheck to paycheck. On the prosecution side of things, Assistant District Attorney Daniel Ford looked over the case he was supposed to bring to trial. His witnesses were between the ages of three and five years old. They had already shown in police interviews that they weren't always consistent with their stories, and some even denied Bernie did anything at times. If he put these children on the stand only to have them deny everything, his case would fall apart. The strongest piece of forensic evidence was Peter Haynes's positive gonorrhea test, and Ford saw even that slip away from him. Bernie tested negative for gonorrhea, and a search of his medical records showed he had never been treated for the disease at any point. With all of this in front of him, ADA Ford thought his best option was a plea deal. A guilty plea was still a win, and he wouldn't have to risk losing what was turning out to be the most publicized case of his career. So ADA Ford extended a generous plea deal to Bernie in late October. If Bernie pleaded guilty to some of the charges, he only faced a five-year prison term. But if he insisted on going to trial, Ford would indict him on child rape charges, which carried a possible life sentence. Bernie would die behind bars. But he turned down the deal, maintaining his innocence. He wouldn't admit any guilt, even if it meant a lesser sentence. So Daniel Ford brought the case to the grand jury. The grand jury's role is to determine if there is probable cause to suggest a crime has been committed and, if possible, identify who committed that crime. 
The rules of evidence in a grand jury are much more relaxed than in a trial. So instead of having the young children testify, Ford showed jurors videotapes of their statements. Well, not all of the tapes. Ford took clips from four of the children's statements and made a compilation video, showing only the sections where the children accused Bernie of abuse. Jane Satulo, who had conducted two of the interviews shown, testified that the only portion of the interviews cut was the time she spent getting the child comfortable enough to speak. But in fact, there were also omitted sections of tape in which the children repeatedly denied that Bernie touched them. Satulo did not include them because she was working off the generally accepted theory of the time that children will make several denials before they will admit their abuse. Those clips, which Satulo did include, taken out of context, were persuasive. Bernie was indicted on November 7, 1984, on five counts of rape and five counts of indecent assault and battery. Assistant District Attorney Dan Ford then began preparations to make good on his promise that Bernie Barron would die in prison. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with our next episode on Bernie Barron. We'll cover Bernie's fight to prove his innocence, the changes in how investigators approach child sexual abuse cases, and how those changes impacted Bernie's case years later. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself, were the accusations against Bernie credible or were they the result of public fear-mongering? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charles Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.